Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, let's pray. Again, let's go before the Lord. The people of God pray. That's what we do. We are not independent creatures. We are very dependent. So we come to the Lord and ask for His help. And we do not ask as people who look in the mirror and then forget what we look like. We ask in faith, believing that God will give us what we ask. And so we're going to ask for wisdom and trust that He'll give it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank You for Your kindness. I thank You that You are actually present with us. I thank you that every time we open your book, your word, we're actually hearing from you, hearing you speak. We don't come to hear banter. We don't come to give each other religious ideas or just come for some social aspect. We come to hear from you. And we get to actually hear what you have to say. And we want to hear. Your servants, your sons and daughters, we're here with our ears open. And take our physical ears and then open our spiritual ears and our eyes and our mind and just help us, Lord Jesus. We just, we're eager to hear. Help us to all be on the edge of our seats every single week just to hear what you have to say and then change us. I pray especially for the men in, in the room this morning that you would open our ears and you would help us to grow and help us to fight and love and protect and serve your bride, the church. We can't look to you, Jesus, and say, oh, I love you so much, but your bride is annoying. We can't do that. We just can't do that. We look at you and say, we love you, and we love what you love. So we love your church. So just help us, Holy Spirit. I trust that you're going to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The role of men in the church. That's the title of the sermon. We're moving through this. We just got two more weeks in the sermon series. Uh, We'll be finishing next week and then starting the book of Romans on Easter Sunday. And the book of Romans starts the very first like six or seven verses with Jesus' death and resurrection. Resurrection, Easter. So that's going to be a really natural opening of the book being on Easter Sunday. It's going to be exciting. But today, the role of men in the church. Men are needed. Men are needed. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was a guy who was not influenced by the people around him. He was not bound by tradition or by culture. He did the right thing, not the expected thing. That's why so often people were very, very annoyed with his actions. Uh, Jesus, why don't you follow the traditions and the commandments of, of men? Why, why, do your, sir, why do your disciples go and they eat with unwashed hands? You don't follow the traditions the way that a rabbi is to follow the traditions. Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman in Samaria. He walked through Samaria, unlike the highest of high religious leaders who would walk around Samaria, Jesus walked right smack dab through the middle of it to get to Galilee. Walked through Samaria, and then talked to a Samaritan woman by himself at a well. Scandalous. He didn't care about the court of public opinion. Jesus was always about his father's business. In John chapter 5, if you remember when we were preaching through the book of John, uh, there was a statement that really rattled some folks because he said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus was a man who obeyed his heavenly father, not man. He didn't have one eye on God and one got one eye on people. He wanted to obey his heavenly father. Jesus obeyed His heavenly Father. And although Jesus spent a lot of time with women, we're going to talk about that more next week, about all the things that God has called women to do. Far less than suppressing women, He has called women up. And He even taught women, commissioned women, calls women to also live and die for His sake, sends them out with the power of the Holy Spirit and calls them to do specific things. God has specific things for men to do as well. In Luke 6 Verse 12 through 16, we see that Jesus has an all-night prayer session. He prays all night long. He's praying to his heavenly Father. And, you know, if I try to pray all night long or do anything all night long, I will eventually fall asleep. Jesus is intently, intentionally praying all night long. And then the next morning, after a night of prayer, Jesus chooses his disciples. And it's interesting. This says nothing about... Uh, 
nothing about, in a negative way, women in any way, but it does say that Jesus had some things for men to do. He did not choose a single woman. God the Father wanted 12 men as 12 apostles, of 12 apostles. And the audacity of this, he, he was scandalous in so many ways in the way he talked to women. But in our day today, what's really scandalous is that he actually called 12 men to be apostles. 12 men to be apostles. They were all people very much like him. It was not a multi-ethnic crew. There is audacity in that as well. It's not PC. It's not woke by today's standards. God the Holy Spirit says the exact same thing the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is the exact same thing as an elder, he desires a noble task. It's a gender-specific word attached to this title of overseer or elder. Men are called to do this work, and it is noble. There is a nobility, nobility to the call of being an elder. Men are needed in the home and men are needed in the church. Let me just remind you of what happens when men uh, run from their responsibility in the home. And this is, you've heard me read this before, from fatherhood.gov. It's a statistic sheet on men in the home. And I just want to reread this for you to see. This is not a Christian study. This is just the United States government looking at all the statistics of fatherless homes, and then reporting what they find. What happens when men are not responsible in the home, when they leave their responsibilities? Well, here's what happens. In the children of that home, of a fatherless home, there is a four times greater risk of poverty. just want you to think about that. Four times greater risk of poverty in fatherless homes. For young girls in the home, they are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. Four times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. Fatherless homes, the children in fatherless homes are more likely to have behavioral problems, to face abuse and neglect, two times greater risk of infant mortality. Things that don't seem like necessarily a one-to-one -one here. Two times greater risk of infant mortality. More likely to, uh, to abuse drugs and alcohol. More likely to go to prison. Two times more likely to suffer from obesity. And more likely to commit crime. And two times more likely to drop out of high school. You can go on fatherhood.gov and see that for yourself. I've challenged you a couple times to do that. Just to go look at it and see what the United States government has to say about it. We know what the problem of the home is in America. It's generation after generation of men who have either left their families or abdicated their responsibility in the home. Men are needed in the home, and men are needed in the church. That is not to say that women are not needed in the home or women are not needed in the church. Both are needed in the home, and both are needed in the church. But what happens when men don't take responsibility in the home seriously? Well, the home is in turmoil. Without men in the home, it just simply falls apart. And what's true of the home is also true in the church. We see this in the church at large with mainline denominations throughout the years. Here's the slip. Here's how the slip of liberalism always happens. It happens time and time again in Germany in the 1800s. It's happened in our country throughout the 1900s and into today. You have people who originally begin to question the authority of the word. Can you trust that the Bible is inerrant? They say, no, you can't trust that the Bible is inerrant. The next step that always happened in every single generation is this issue about gender. Does God really have some things to say about men and women? And you look at these denominations, mainline denominations across the board are the first who have fallen. Those who have adopted female elders and have said that this is not any longer something that only men are called to have declined like crazy. The, the statistics are staggering. You look at the Methodist Church, you look at the Presbyterian Church USA, and you look at their decline, and it, you have big, massive buildings all throughout this country with nobody in them. What happens at home also happens at the church. When men walk away from their responsibilities at church and just say, I'll sit in the pew, I'll be at least present, vote present, I'll be around, but I'm going to let everybody else do the work. I'm just going to be present the church cannot stand. 
And so I want to take a look at the home and church connection from 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 4 and 5. I want to read the section on qualifications for elders and then specifically focus in on managing your own household well because I want us to see the connection between the home and the church because the home we're going to see is a microcosm of what the church is. The church is the family of God. And so what's true about the home is also true about the church. If you have unhealthy families, you'll have unhealthy churches. If you have healthy, healthy families, you will have healthy churches. It's a one-to-one -one comparison here. If you have healthy elders' homes, and then you will eventually have a healthy church. If you have unhealthy elders' homes, you will eventually have an unhealthy church. There is a home and church relationship. 1 Timothy 3, chapter... Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to flip to Acts chapter 20 and finish up there here in a little bit. Here is the Word of God. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. I think that means not a polygamist, a one-woman kind of man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. You'll notice in this section of Scripture, that's the only ability that's listed. That's the only gifting that's listed. Everything else has to do with character. We're talking about who these men are. Able to teach, not, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he will be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Within these qualifications, you'll find a very similar list in, Ch in Titus chapter 1. We get this connection. If a man cannot manage his home, he cannot manage the church. So goes the family, so goes the church. So when we talk about family issues, when we talk about what it means to be a husband or what it means to be a wife, we are fighting for the good, not just of this local church, we're fighting for the good of the, the church, the big C church, but also for this world. Because nations go as family goes as well. And a nation with broken families will eventually be a broken nation. And a nation of healthy families will eventually be a healthy nation. We cannot expect to have men and women not knowing what it means to be men or women and ever have a, a godly or even a healthy nation. Same thing with local churches. So there's this connection. There's a one-to-one -one relationship here. So goes the family, so goes the church. How this man takes care of his household is how he is going to take care of the church. If you want to know how well a pastor is doing, turn your attention not first to the local church that he serves in. Turn, his, turn your attention to the home. How are things at home? Talk to his wife. I heard one person say one time, if you're a pastor and putting out resumes somewhere, and say if you're putting a resume out at a local church, ask to stay at an elder's home. Don't just go on a Sunday morning and ask, how is the worship gathering on Sunday morning? Go and ask to stay a week in an elder's home. And find out how the home life is in that particular elder's home. How are their children? You want to find out what the home life is like of elders. If our wives and kids are not thriving, then something is profoundly wrong, even if the church is exploding. It is not a win, even though we want to see more and more people come to Christ. If more and more people are coming to Christ, but there are unhealthy homes within a leadership of a church, eventually that church will implode. It's not sustaining. It's smoke and mirrors. It will not last. You have to have healthy homes. Getting the home right matters. So a man who is not husbanding in his husbandry and fathering in his fathering, if he's not doing that well, he will fail as a pastor regardless of how gifted he is behind a pulpit. Regardless. What kind of man would want to get to the end of his life and have people talk about his oratory skills 
and have so many people talk about how he was always available and open to them and always willing to take a phone call and pray and walk with them in life, only to have his kids barely show up to his funeral. That's not a good thing. It is not a good thing at all. And here's my thesis. All men, all men, every man, and this is crucial to where this is going today, every man should want to be like the first Timothy 3 man. All men should desire to be above reproach. All men should want to be men of character. Every single man in this room should aspire to elder-like character. When you read this, this is about growing in Christ's likeness. It's about being an honorable man. And every man should want to be an honorable man. Nobody in here should say, well, I don't want to be like that. Or I don't want to set my aim there. I would rather just stay how I am and just live my life. No, we all should want to be men of Christ-like character. We should all want to be First Timothy 3 men, every one of us. And not all men, not all men will have the desire to be an elder, but boy, oh boy, do I wish more would. This has fallen out of favor in the last few centuries. Do you know that mothers used to pray, mothers and fathers used to pray that God would call their sons into ministry? Moms and grandmas, their dying wish, God, would you call one of my grandchildren into ministry? How wonderful would it be if we had young men, little boys running around here, unsaved now, eventually saved, baptized, when you ask them, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a pastor. I want to be an elder at a local church. I don't really care what I do, what else I do, but I want to be an elder. I want to be that kind of man. The, the, the whole thesis here is we all should want to be these, this kind of man. Every one of us, even those who do not feel that they're ever going to be called to be an elder, should want the character of an elder. How wonderful would that be? In the same way that God calls men to be protectors of their home, and here's the connection, God calls men to be protectors of the church. And let me just plead with you here. Men, we have to fight for the protection and the purity of the local church. Every man has to fight for the protection and the purity of the local church. The world, the flesh, the devil are out to destroy us. The world, the flesh, and the devil hate us. They hate you. And we have to fight. The world hates the family unit. There are many, and you see this in the political sphere right now, that are literally okay with infanticide. Letting babies, I don't even want to say it. There's a movie out, Unplanned. If you can go see it, go see it. It's horrific. Children are not loved. They're not seen as arrows in the heart of a warrior. They're not seeing the blessing or the fruit of the womb. They're seen as a curse in our world today. Collateral damage that it's okay just to throw away. Men in local churches must fight for the protection and the purity of local churches. Biblical men never throw. Well, excuse me, we must step up and we must see the visible and the invisible battles that rage around us. Let's open our eyes like Elisha's servant and be able to see the battle that's happening. It's all around us. We are supernatural people living in a world of people who just think everything's natural. But we know there's supernatural realities going on here. There are demons and angels around us. We are called to engage in battle. There is a war for the souls of our kids and the souls of our wives, men. An absolute war for them. And we have to step up. We must see those battles in ourselves, in our homes, in families, in our church, in our world, and be willing to exert the energy to do something about it. It's the easiest thing in the world, men, to coast and let things come to us. That's not what Christian men do. We take up the sword and we go into the battle. We go to the front lines and we say, I'll fight the wolves. That's what men are called to do. Biblical men never throw women and children to the world, the flesh, and the devil to be eaten by wolves. Biblical men never call their wives and children to say, you guys handle it. Ever. Not in our homes and not in the church. We will fight for the purity of this church. 
Real men fight. That's what Pastor Paul refers to pastoral ministry with terms like this. Soldier. If you're going to be in pastoral ministry, Timothy, it's going to be like being a soldier. You're going to be in the front lines. You're going to be bloody. And you may get a bullet to the chest. You're a soldier. You're an ox doing the work. Strap. Strap the... What's that farm equipment? Dan would know. What do you strap around an ox? You strap a yoke around an ox. And men, take that yoke. And we go into the field and we get muddy and we pull our weight by the grace of God. A farmer, a hard-working farmer. These are words that are used to describe pastoral ministry. An athlete, as an athlete trains day in and day out, seeing little progress at a time. So pastors and men of the local church go to fight for the church. Pastoral work is blue-collar work. It's masculine work. Remember... This is what all men should want to be. And so today when we're talking about pastoral ministry, I'm not just talking about elders in a local church. I'm talking what all men should aspire to. Every single one of us should want to be elder-like men. Every one of us. That I long to be. I'm in the process of growing. I hope you are as well. None of us have arrived. None of us have fully become the men God is calling us to be. We are all works in progress. Now remember, all men wanting to be this way in pastoral ministry being manly or masculine work, the call to fight for the protection and the purity of the church being upon us men is a dangerous calling. To be a pastor is to be the first in the church to die. And every man should want to be like that. To be a pastor in times past is to be the first burned at the stake is to be singled out amongst believers. Preacher, you're coming with me as his family watches him go to the stake. Now ladies, there may come a day that you have to step up like Joan of Arc and be burned at the stake as well. But men, how dare we step aside and let them take our wives and daughters. We step up and say, take me. Take me. A pastor is to put yourself in harm's way for the sake of the church. And for instance, if the proposed Equality Act, just Google Equality Act, gets put into law, it will be me who goes to jail, me, Jared Sparks, who goes to jail before you. But we don't think about these things because we live in a first world country and we don't see and face persecution like the way the rest of the world does and most of all history has. But men, this is what we're called to be and called to do. It's a masculine call. I want us to go to Acts chapter 20 and I want us to see the Apostle Paul. And in this scene, it's it's really interesting. You see a really interesting scene where the the Ephesian elders... Now remember these elders, they're about to be warned. But in in Revelation chapter 3, we're told that the church in Ephesus had forgotten their first love. They had doctrine right. They had some things right. But they have forgotten their first love. The love they had at the beginning for the Lord. Something went wrong in the church of Ephesus. We don't know. By the time Third John was written, which was written to the church in Ephesus, the last letter that was written before Revelation, we don't know what happened in those years. But at some point, they had begun to lose their first love. And here is Paul leaving Ephesus, and he calls the elders and the families of the elders to this beach. And here they are on the beach, and we're going to see that they're weeping together. And you can almost see them. It's like they're down on a knee, and they're gathered together, and they've got their arms around each other, and their kids and their family are all there. And they're all weeping, and Paul knows, they're never gonna, I'm never going to see these people again. And they know, we're never going to see Paul again. Paul knows that he's walking to his death. And they're all there, and there's actual weeping taking place. They love each other. They've, they've, they remember the revival that took place in Ephesus. They remember that all the books that were full of witchcraft and all this other things, they brought all the books together, and they remember the riot that started because everything was burned. And they're all crying and remembering and thanking the Lord, and they're just crying on the beach. And here's what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul turns to the elders. And I can just imagine him just sit watching him plead with these elders, and he begins to talk to these elders. And I want you to hear this morning what he had to say to these men. Look and starting in verse 20. Actually, let's just go ahead and start in verse 17. And we'll read down all the way through 25 so you can get this 
scene in your mind. And that will kind of give us the backdrop as we go into, ch- into verses 26 and 27. Acts chapter 20, starting verse 17. Now from Melitius he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to him. And when they came to, and they came to him and he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and was teaching you in public and from house to house. By the way, that's why we do large groups and small groups, public, house to house. 21, testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I can finish the course of my ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You can see Paul's heart for those who are in Ephesus. It's the elders, they're hanging out, and he wants to address them, and he knows, you're not going to see me again. And he appeals to them, and hey, you've remembered this. This whole time, you remembered how I labored with you, and how he preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. You remember these things. And he doesn't stop here. He continues to go on. And I want you to hear this masculine call go out to these elders. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. Verse 25, 26, and 27. And now, behold, I know that none of you, none among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And here's what he says. Therefore, I testify. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back in declaring you the whole counsel of God. Paul wants them to know that he is innocent of their blood. Why? Why is he innocent of the blood of everybody that's in Ephesus? Because he declared the whole counsel of God to them. Pastors cannot, this is to me, But I believe this is for all men in the sense that we cannot be ashamed of the Word of God. Pastors cannot be scared to preach anything that is in this book. Nothing. In other words, some wrongly believe that some Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. But the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All of it. Every bit of it. And the reason Paul was not, was able to walk away innocent of the blood of them all because he believed every single word God had spoken. Every word is good. Every single word is good. It's not that some of it is good, and some other of it is not as good and not equally as important. Although some, obviously, when we get to the book of Romans, we, we have to talk about there's some pages of the Scripture that are, quote, unquote, more important in its revelation, but not more important, meaning that somehow God spoke some of it and didn't spoke any other of it. He spoke it all. It's as if all of the Bible is red letter. You know, when you open your Bible and you see in red letter Bibles, it's just the words of Jesus. But here's what we have to consider. All of the words in this book are of, is equal, equally inspired. Verbal, plenary inspiration is what we believe. That these are the very words of God. And pastors cannot be scared and men cannot be scared of what God has to say. When we bump up into things in the Bible when we don't know or understand, we wrestle, we pray, we open up commentaries, we wrestle, we pray, we open up commentaries. But here's what we don't do. Eh, I don't agree with that. We don't have the liberty to do that. Paul is innocent of their blood because he's not ashamed of the Word of God. And it is easy today. If you say and believe, and preach, and hold to 
Every person in here, if you say and hold to all that God says and holds to, eventually what people out there say about God's word, they will say about you. You're outdated. You just don't get it. This is archaic. You bigot. How dare you, you believe that your sex, the sexual ethic you believe? What people say about the Bible, they will eventually say about those who believe the Bible. And that's why James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. The men God calls have to value God's word over the court of public opinion. And all men should want to be like that. We don't care. Come hell or high water, we will say what God says and believe what God says. In verse 28, we see Paul's great care for the local church. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Hey, elders, pay attention to yourself. Elders, elders, through those tears, I want to remind you, pay attention to yourself because it's easy for men and elder teams. It's easy for men and elder teams to coast. So many elder teams, so many men in local churches... And so many elder teams of local churches are unqualified elders who are little more than yes men and they don't watch themselves. And what we have to be careful of as elders and what we have to be careful of as men of Christ Church Carbondale is that we watch ourselves. Because there is a tendency inside of us, if you remember back to the first week of this sermon series, our sins, the sin propensities in us are either to be passive and just coast or to be aggressive not passive-aggressive, but passive or aggressive, or to be chauvinistic or domineering. We've got to be, we've got to be care- careful and pay attention. And right in the middle, somewhere in the middle, is engaging and willing to fight without being a jerk. All men are called to be like this. Therefore, if people don't pay attention to the flock because... They're not qualified men or not godly men. They're just coasting. They simply don't care for the church. But the commission here that Paul tells the church leaders in Ephesus is, hey, care for them. Just care for them. Do you care about local churches? Do you care for the local church? It's Jesus' wife. Do you love her? Do you care for her? Or is she just there when you want to Do you love the local church? Care for the local church, he commissions them to do. And here's how this works. Healthy elders equals a healthy church. Unhealthy elders equals an unhealthy church. Healthy men equals a healthy church. Unhealthy men equals an unhealthy church. When we get to talking about ladies next week again, healthy ladies often means a healthy church. Unhealthy ladies often means an unhealthy church. The Holy Spirit establishes, notice here, it's not churches that establish elders. It is the Holy Spirit. Now this is challenging to me this week. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Paul's pneumatology here, which is the the, the big theological word for doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he believes that the Holy Spirit is establishing elders in the church of Ephesus. that, That the Holy Spirit is actually calling men to this call. That they just simply weren't voted in. That the Holy Spirit had His work in all of this. The Holy Spirit establishes them to care for the church. Jesus obtained the church with His own blood. Again, this is a... If you think about that verse, it's important to know that Jesus actually died to save His bride. He cares for her that much. He didn't die just to make a possibility for there to be a church. He actually purchased His church with His own blood blood. And so the church is in fact precious to Jesus and then the Holy Spirit comes along to give us caretakers. And I am the recipient of caretakers. I am an elder who has elders. I have pastors. My family has pastors. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to have pastors. I'm thankful for the pastors of this church. I'm thankful for the men of this church. 
But here's what he warns them with. He doesn't just commission them, he gives them a warning. In verse 29 and 30, here's what we see. This is so important and going to be crucial for us to understand masculinity in the local church or the call of men in the local church. Look at verse 29. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Now he's talking to elders. Fierce wolves are going to come in among you and not spare the flock. And among you, your own selves, he's warning the elders, from the elders themselves, from the elders, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Fierce wolves are coming. And I'll just say this quickly. We, we really don't believe that fierce wolves still exist. We, we really believe in the church today that if anybody just says the word Jesus out of their mouth, they're on our team. And there is an element of church truth. You know, we need to rejoice that people are preaching the gospel. Even if it's not as accurate as it could be. I've never preached the gospel as, as accurate as it possibly could be in my entire life. I could always preach the gospel better. But not everybody who utters the word Jesus out of their mouth is, is talking about the same Jesus. Fierce wolves that will come in the name of brother. They will have a title of pastor, elder. And they're coming in. And Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, you've got to watch out for these fierce wolves. It's not that they are toothless. They, are, they can bite. They're fierce. And they're going to come in and they're going to cause damage. And men, we do not willingly throw women and children into the battle. We do not throw women to battle these fierce wolves. It's sheepish. It's sheepish to, as men in a local church and as elders of a local church to say, okay, ladies, go fight the wolves. That is very sheepish. And the argument about gender roles, and there isn't an argument, there is an argument there. We have to keep in mind language that is used. If a physical wolf was in our midst, let me just ask you this, like a physical wolf. I remember one time I had a dream when I was a little boy, the 606 Carbon Street, and we had a little dog named Ginger. I feel so bad looking back on this dog named Ginger. She had fleas everywhere. I was in charge of feeding her, which means she rarely ate. Um, I just feel so bad for this. Somehow she still got big. I don't, she was a portly little dog that never ate. I don't, I don't know how that happened. But Ginger, I had a dream one day. I woke up and the dream was that a wolf was fighting my dog Ginger and then jumped through the window. And I kid you not, I ran to my mom and dad's room thinking behind me there was a wolf chasing me. Now, let me just ask you, if, if there's a real wolf, if you walk out these doors and your family is there, and it's just, we're talking about physical realities here before we talk about spiritual realities. You got your family, you look out, there's a gray wolf walking in the yard. And it's ferocious, and it's, it looks rabid. And it's slobber coming down, tooth, about 115 pounds, something like that. Pretty big gray wolf. I'm a, I'm a wolf fan, so 115 pounds of a gray wolf, that's pretty, pretty big. I'm not a fan of these kind of wolves, though. Comes up and starts running to your family. In the same way if an intruder breaks into your house, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, if I saw any of you men, or if you saw me put ransom and valor and put my wife and say, Jordan, jump and I just jumped behind her and started shielding myself and our kids with her, what would you think of me? What, honestly, what kind of man is that? What a pathetic human being. There's no excuse for a man like that. We would all think that, and we would be right to think that. Every single man walking across this door, walking across, there's a rabid dog, St. Bernard or anything, like Cujo dog running around. You should, let's, okay, I'm going to physically, I'm going to be cut up, I'm going to be bloodied, but by golly, if, I, if my fam, I'm going to, if that dog kills me, if that wolf kills me, he can eat off me, but he's not going to have my kids and my wife. He might get my throat and take me down, but my wife and family will have time to escape. Now, what's true in these physical realities is true in spiritual realities. Likewise, spiritual wolves come, and men must be armed for battle for our families. Must be. Must be armed for battle. We will not come out, out, out unscathed. There will be bleeding. 
There will be mockery. We will be told by naive people that those are not wolves, they're just sheep, and you're being mean to other Christians. As you're getting bloodied up and fighting for the people around you and defending the truth, people are going to say, you bigot, you're just a Christian bigot. You don't like other Christians. What about Christian unity? Now, we don't want to be trigger happy calling everybody out there a heretic. That, that's not the point of going to fight everybody out there. Every Christian that's teaching something false uh, is we've got to call every single one of them a wolf and a heretic. But you know what? There are some. And they're prevalent, and their message is very, very strong. And one of the hardest things about Christian ministry and therefore past and Christian manhood is when you're fighting wolves and you get your flesh torn away as you're bleeding and dying for people around you, fighting for the truth and for God's church, for God's people to turn and say, you're a legalistic Pharisee. But it will happen. It will happen by people you have to love and fight for anyways. By people who think you're the mean one and you show them love and fight for them anyways. We think you're in the wrong. From, from among your own selves, wolves in pastors' clothing. Their books sell. Their podcasts are listened to. Let me try to model this. And it may feel uncomfortable, but I think it's needed. It needs to be said. Bill Johnson of Bethel, out in California, in Redding, California, is one of the most prevalent false teachers in our day. And people flock to him. I read his book last year uh, called God is Good. It is the worst book I've ever read in my life. It's horrific. It, it cherry picks Bible verses through the entire way and then mocks God's word over and over and over again. I've got it underlined. I couldn't hardly tolerate it. And he had the audacity to claim... He, he, quoted A.W. Tozer at the very beginning of the book, and A.W. Tozer would have loathed this book. And in defense of his position, he mocked a dead man in the grave who really loved Jesus by ascribing his name to that book as if A.W. Tozer would have agreed with it. It was horrific. And his church and their school of supernatural signs and wonders and the music that is, I, like, there's some music that's really good that... I enjoy. And it goes out, but he is one of the most prominent false teachers. He has got a false gospel. I can't tell you for sure that he is a non-believer, that he's non-regenerate, but I can tell you for sure the message that he preaches is a false message. And people eat it up like crazy. It's like there's no differentiation between, as long as people say Jesus and open the Bible, it's like, yeah, it's great. Look at all the fruit. Fruit doesn't mean discernment. And people, when we talk about discernment today, most of the time when people talk about discernment, they're talking about a feeling inside about a particular person or teaching. That's not biblical discernment. Biblical discernment is this. Is what they're saying true according to this? People with the gift of discernment are people who know how to accurately handle the Word of God. That's who has the gift of discernment. People who get feelings about particular ministries or people, that's not discernment. This is discernment. And Bill Johnson is a false teacher that people need to avoid. Joel Osteen is teaching a false gospel. He preaches a different gospel. It's not the same gospel at all. And I want you to think about this. As I'm talking about this, this is uncomfortable for me to say. It really is. To, to name names like this is not a comfortable thing to do. It feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. And yet it's necessary Rachel Hollis, in her book, Girl, Wash Your Face, is spreading lies to women throughout this whole country. Lies. You don't put yourself first, women. It's not what you're called to do. Lies. It's, it's, it's not true. And these sorts of things, men, we have, we have to fight for the truth. We have to fight for the truth. Ladies are responsible before God, before God for what they listen to as you are, but we are called to battle against wolves. We, men, are called to fight wolves. The ladies are never commissioned in the Bible to fight wolves. We are. Fight the wolves. Call them out. Defend the sheep. And to do this, some of you open yourself up to criticism. Because even maybe in some of you, and even in myself, it just doesn't feel right. 
And there'll be some people who love Bill Johnson if they, the 10 people who listen to these, if somebody listens to this, listen to it and think, how dare he? But we have to open ourselves up to that if we're going to fight for the truth. And we have to love those who don't like calling out names. But Paul tells us wolves are coming and they won't spare the flock. Even when some people say, well, just leave them alone. Just let them do what they're doing. If some preach Christ out of selfish ambition, well, then praise the Lord. This is more than just preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. This is preaching a different Christ. Disciples will be drawn away if you don't fight the wolves. Men, if we don't fight, there will be disciples that are drawn away. And in fact, this is still happening today. People with a title, pastor, drawing sheep away. It's happening all over. It's happening locally. It's happening throughout this world. There is a prominent church in the area that does not believe in the Trinity. And I don't think people even know about it. And there are people all over this place flocking to this church to hear it's a different God. There are godly people there who love Jesus that have no idea. Christians, people who are born again. But that message, that's a different God. A non-Trinitarian God is not the God of the Bible, but thankfully, God can save people who are confused even about who He is. Don't don't hear me say universalism. I probably should tease that out, but for time's sake. Verse 31 and 32. Therefore, disciples are going to be drawn away, drawing many disciples after them. Verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. Therefore, because of all of this stuff, elders, be alert. Be alert. Be on the lookout. Watch out for the wolves. Protect. Admonish. The word admonish has to do with warning, pleading with people, correcting. This is pleading through tears. I'm pleading with you. I'm crying out for you. Please don't be deceived by these wolves. Please admonish. You can see Paul. I can see Paul just in a counseling. I just in a counseling session with somebody in Ephesus, in a building in Ephesus, and just crying out. Please don't follow Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. Alexander is not a good man. And if you follow what he's teaching you, it will not be good. Don't do it. So Paul admonished through tears, and therefore he commends them. Here's what he says to them, and this is what all elders should do, and even men should aspire to, all men. He commends them to God and to His grace. Commends them to God and to His grace. In verse 31, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up in the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. We believe in the gospel of Jesus here, and we're gospel-centered because we want you to be built up. He commends them to God. His final trust is not in His pastoral ministry. His final trust is not in these elders. Paul's final trust here is, I'm commending you to God. God can handle you. God can handle you, and I'm commending you to His grace, because that's what you need, the grace of God, men. God's grace builds people up, and this is pastoral work. Give people the grace of God. Give people God. Give people God's grace. And that, therefore, is also what all men, I believe, are called to do. Here's the deal. God calls men to manhood. In 1 Corinthians 16, He says, act like men. Hey guys, act like men. He calls them up from their slumber and in to a high and holy and dangerous calling. If you heed this call, if you take this call, you will bleed if you answer. You'll bleed. Godly men answer the call and fight for their families. They fight for the church. They fight for their world. All for the glory of Christ. Will we heed the call? Will this world over the decades say, those are the most godly men we know. They love the grace of God. They are humble men. They're not about themselves. They are about the glory of Jesus. Those are the best husbands, the best fathers we've ever seen. 
Those are the men who are the first to repent who will tell you, I don't have it all together, that they need Jesus. Will you be, by God's grace, those kind of men? Will you suffer with us and for us? Will you believe the whole counsel of God? Will you open yourself up to ridicule and to persecution? Will you step into battle with the fierce spiritual wolves? Will you gladly walk into prison in shackles singing? Will you fight with me and with us for the grace of God and the Spirit of God and the Word of God to work and to be 1 Timothy 3 and Acts 20 men? Or will you be just okay? Will you and I just be okay with coasting? Business as usual? Life? I'm okay if I can just get through life and survive? Friends, if we'll press into the grace of God, the grace of God will work mightily. We are commended to the God of the universe and to His glorious grace. And if that's true, watch out world. God's men are coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for calling us. I thank You for Your unique call both on men and women. And specifically for the room of men, help us. God, we, I, I commend myself to You and Your grace. And I pray this morning we would have a sense of You and Your grace. I pray we would sense the presence of You, Almighty God of the universe, with us right now. Kind and compassionate. A warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. And God, You would help us. Maybe a practical step for some of the men in the room is what area right now do I need to step up into? God's calling me up into. How can I fight for? How can I go on the offensive here? Where is the enemy shooting his arrows? How can I fight for my wife? How can I create room to, for her to flourish in the way that God is calling her to flourish? How can I fight for my kids and not coast Lord, just help us. Holy Spirit, clarify. There's areas that we need to repent of. Help us to repent. But we are commended to You and Your grace. And help us just to enjoy that. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that You will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If anybody wants to pray, kneel and pray.